Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We're back with another episode of content from the EMDR supplement this week. The EMDR supplement is an advanced EMDRIA training we created to support clinicians in their practice of EMDR. If you're just starting to listen to this season's holiday releases, make sure to go back a couple episodes to the start of the EMDR supplement to catch up. This week, we're going to dive into the working stages of EMDR phases three through eight. So you'll need to have the context of those preceding episodes. Within this episode, we're going to be diving into the function and purpose of each of these phases with a specific focus on how we can be intentional with our case conceptualization approach to make the most of these crucial phases in EMDR therapy. While you will hear the phases described broadly within the context of the standard eight phases of EMDR, you'll also hear discussion of the three channels of processing, interweaves, managing dissociation during processing, closing a complete versus incomplete session, and how to adapt the treatment plan and approach after reprocessing. As a reminder, we use the entire EMDR supplement to support clinicians who take part in our certification program. During the course of the program, we work systematically through the EMDR supplement and invite participants to share case examples and develop an authentic embodiment of EMDR therapy in their therapeutic identity. If you're interested in finding a certification cohort that fits your schedule, check out our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and click on the Four Therapists tab for our course calendar and program registration. As always, if you are a supporter of Notice That and want to help the podcast grow, please consider rating and leaving a review for the podcast in your favorite podcast player. That's one of the most direct and powerful ways you can support the podcast. All right. We hope you enjoy this episode and that it encourages and inspires you in your EMDR journey. Once we have identified the target memory that's to be processed, then we move into the assessment phase. So the assessment phase is filled with several different important questions, but we want to dig a little bit deeper as to why are those questions there and in that order so that we have a greater understanding of the assessment phase. 
It's really uh, helpful for me to kind of understand the neurobiology behind what exactly we're doing with EMDR to explain why we do the assessment phase, the way that we do it, and the order in which we do it. Um, so one of the essential ingredients of any kind of modality that we do that involves memory reconsolidation is that we have to activate the material that we want to reprocess and reconsolidate. The assessment phase is all about the activation of the material that we're desiring to work with. And activation happens by intentionally stimulating the neural networks that house that memory with all of the different elements of what makes up memory in our nervous system. And the different elements of memory are exactly the questions that are on your assessment worksheet that you do with every client for every target. So we identify that image, the visual material, the cognition is the, the uh, logical material, the thinking material, the emotional material, and then the affective or body sensation material is the last thing because that drops the client into the affective uh, sensation of what they went through. And so all of those different elements of uh, the assessment is all about waking up that memory in the client's nervous system so that when we apply the bilateral stimulation and we start the process, that we're actually working with the material that we wanted to work with. So all sections of the assessment are really significant, but aren't necessarily required or mandatory for that memory to be accessed and activated. It is a means of doing that, but if you're working with an individual who is unable to identify um, one of the answers on the assessment, it's more important to keep moving mm -hmm. rather than getting hung up on just trying to complete an answer. So it's more important that the stored mem memory itself is fully activated and is somatically being experienced and evoked in the moment so that then we can move directly into the reprocessing phase. Sometimes we get distracted with, we have to get every single question answered and we have to know, is that exactly the mm -hmm. right image or exactly the right cognition or how is that score, is that accurate or not? When we're doing that, we're actually calling upon energy in a different region of the brain. We're you know, encouraging the client in this rational, logical thinking about the assessment rather than having them re-access the memory in which we're working on and all of the material that's been stored with it. So if we put too much emphasis on the cognitions or on identifying and rating the SUD or the VOC, it can actually draw them away from what we want to be stimulating. Now, we go ahead and ask those questions because it's incredibly helpful for us to be able to measure and track our clients' progress throughout reprocessing. But if they seem to be struggling and an answer isn't readily available, we actually prefer to just go ahead and skip that and go into reprocessing, trusting that whatever material needs to come up will come up. So for example, if you ask your client the question, what negative words go with that when you focus on it and they don't know? or they can't find words to articulate it, or they start to go through several and you can tell that they're thinking rationally and logically rather than really feeling it, it's better to call them back to the image that helped them connect with the distress and move on without a negative cognition rather than stay in that debate over finding the perfect negative cognition because that's not actually the purpose of the assessment phase. With all of that in mind, the assessment phase really should only take a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't want to find ourselves there for a prolonged period of time. If we notice ourselves getting lost in conversation back and forth about the questions or rummaging through papers to find that negative cognition list and having them search through the list, 
we really are defeating the purpose of what the assessment phase is about. So within a couple of minutes, we should be running through each of those main points of the assessment, mm -hmm. activating it within their system, and then moving directly into the reprocessing phase. Mm -hmm. It sometimes is useful to use that sheet if it actually speeds up the process. So if you want to use it, have it ready um, and able to hand to the client really quickly so that they can scan quickly, find the one that resonates the most, and move on. If you don't have it right there with you, it's going to pull them out of the experience to go hunt for it. But if you have it right there, it can be useful uh, so that you can actually keep moving pretty quickly. The cognitive aspects of reprocessing are important, but we always want to end that assessment phase with their body and with them really feeling the distress of that memory in their body because that is how we know that we have accessed and that we're working with the material that we really need for processing to be successful. For the most effective processing, we really want to process from the bottom up. So we want to be accessing that material somatically and having that move through to the most integrated place where they're able to then cognitively, rationally understand what they're experiencing. So as we get that last piece in the assessment, what, where do you feel it in your body? We start shifting directly into reprocessing, applying the longer, faster sets of bilateral and that kickstarts the processing there. So one of the things that we want to keep in mind as we move into reprocessing is how to really track our clients' work and make sense of what we're seeing and experiencing with them. A way that we do that is through understanding that there are three channels of processing. In order to ensure that a memory is really fully processed, we want to make sure that we're integrating all aspects of that stored memory uh, before we move on and call it cleared. A fully processed memory is going to result in an integration of the somatic material, meaning the body sensations, the emotional material, and the cognitive rational story that they tell themselves about that experience. So all three of those things are incredibly important to track as our clients are, are working through the memory. So as you're tracking that, a few ways in which you can maybe detect when somatic material is being processed is this may look like shifts or changes that are happening within the client's body, something that you're able to observe or something that they're reporting of their own internal experience. Mm -hmm. So this could be um, like body sensations coming up, maybe body sensations releasing or shifting or changing. Also, potentially like a desire for movement. You may see them engaging in movement or expressing a desire or need to move. Some examples of this could be things like shaking, trembling, flushing of the skin, feeling nauseous. All of those would be examples of somatic processing. So as we're going through and working through that memory network, making sure that you are either observing or receiving reports of somatic material being processed in order to ensure that we are holistically clearing this material. With emotional processing, this is where we're considering things like expression of affect, identifying different experiences of emotions. So examples of this may be them crying, anger outbursts, maybe even laughter. It could also be their report of feelings such as sadness, maybe feeling calm or neutral, experiencing joy. So all of those pieces are going to indicate to us that we have accessed the emotional material of that memory. And then third, we're looking at the cognitive processing. This is likely what you're more often seeing with your clients. 
ones that they may be quick to go to or that you're more familiar with. Every client is a little bit different, but this type of processing can include things like thoughts, insights, curiosity, even recollection of certain facts about the experience or details of the memory. So kind of thinking through it rationally or practically. It can be really useful to actually provide a little bit of psychoeducation to our clients about those three different channels of processing and how any of that material may come up. Um, Like Jen said, a lot of our clients are going to be really comfortable with cognitive material coming up, but less comfortable if suddenly they start to tremble or shake um, or if they start feeling really nauseous. We want them to know, hey, that's relevant and it's important for you to share that if that comes up as part of your experience because that's outside of kind of the typical experience that most people have on a day-to-day basis. We want them to know that that can be part of it. So as much as we want to just allow the client system to process in its natural form, if we are noticing uh, dominance in processing in one channel or another, we can, through the processing and the use of interweaves, we can kind of encourage a client system to orient more to a holistic form of processing. So we can stimulate different channels of their system, of their processing. Mm-hmm. And we do this through interweaves. So oftentimes we talk about interweaves as just a general category, but there really are interweaves that are specifically oriented towards somatic processing, emotional processing, and cognitive processing. Some examples of somatic interweaves would be interweaves that are really focused in on orienting the client's attention to their body and the felt sense of the experience. So some that you may be familiar with are questions such as, What are you noticing in your body? What's coming up in your body now? Even questions that may go a little bit more in detail is, is there something that your body would like to express in this moment? Mm -hmm. And we could do these types of interviews in many different ways, even engaging them in taking that action that they feel that they need to take. So anything involving the expression through the body or experiencing the felt sense. Mm An emotional interweave can be an interweave that helps shift the client's focus into noticing the emotions uh, that are present. We may use uh, questions to prompt them like, what feelings come up with that thought? Or when you focus on that physical sensation, is there an emotion that resonates with it? Um, To help them really bring in that emotional content if that is something that we're noticing is lacking. If they're staying only in thought or only in body, we might have to encourage them through the use of emotional interweaves to include that material as well. When we talk about cognitive interweaves, here we're gearing our interweaves more towards deepening the integration of mind by helping them bring insight and awareness to what the other channels of processing have uh, brought forward. So in cognitive processing, we're encouraging them to start to create some form of meaning, articulation, and story around what their um, emotions and body have been experiencing. We can do this with questions such as, what does that mean to you? Or how do you begin to make sense of that experience? So we're activating the cognitive aspects of this memory. You guys have probably heard a lot about interweaves. This is something that becomes really significant when we're looking at processing those traumatic experiences that are very overwhelming, a lot, something where the client's needing some additional support 
to prevent them from getting stuck, blocked, looping. So if we look at what is an interweave, an interweave is adaptive material that is offered to support the client system in the integration of the stored traumatic experience. So as they are processing this stored traumatic experience, if they are unable to access enough adaptive information to then further go on to reprocess for that memory to become fully integrated, we want to offer them that support through the means of an interweave. Mm -hmm. So an interweave can be a lot of different things. There's multiple different kinds in, uh, in previous sections. We've kind of talked about some of those um, different options. But one of the main components of a good interweave is that we're offering just a little bit of information to the client's system, but not taking them too much farther than they currently are. Because if we leap too far ahead, then the client system isn't able to really integrate that in a way that's going to feel organic and natural to them. So we want to be paying attention to just taking them a little bit beyond where they are to see if they can naturally get over the hurdle or the stuck point that they're at and then continue on uh, without our need without need for further intervention on our part. So we want to add just enough and then get out of the way again. As often as possible, we want to rely on the client's own nervous system to do the processing. But we also have to be mindful and recognize that individual's limitations. Yeah. So if this is a client who's experienced developmental trauma or um, really complex trauma, they may not have the adaptive networks to draw from to really help work through that memory network in an adaptive way. And that's where interweaves become really supportive. Mm -hmm. There are two kind of organizing categories for interweaves. And one is process interweaves and the other is looking at content interweaves. Mm -hmm. So process interweaves, this is a way of organizing interweaves based on how they influence the reprocessing. So they're, they're more mechanical in nature than content focused. Process interweaves are utilized as a means for um, changing the client's experience of what's going on. It could be things like changing the speed of the BLS, right? It could be changing the direction if we're doing eye movements. Um, it could be changing the style entirely. So if we were doing eye movements, maybe we go to tactile. That is something about the process of what we're doing is being changed to see if that will uh, kind of kickstart their system to get back on track. Um, it can also be a way of connecting with the client in the moment um, to give their system a sensation of we're right there with them and give them just enough to kind of get over the hurdle that they're at. So an example of a process interweave of us saying something verbally might be, I'm right here with you. I know this is really hard, just a little bit more, and then we'll take a break, right? So we're not focused on the actual material of the content that we're processing, but the process that we're in with the client. Oftentimes, um, people will forget that a simple head nod, humming, mm -hmm. sigh, shifting our own body really is an interweave for the client if they're experiencing mm -hmm. that. And so these would be examples of process interweaves as well, where we may, you know, just a deep breath, like <sighs> the client is receiving that, they're feeling that from us, and it's impacting their process um, and really having an influence on how they're working through that material. Mm -hmm. And then we have content interweaves. Content interweaves have an influence on the actual material of what the client is processing, the, the content of the memory itself. 
Um, so this helps orient their attention to maybe a different piece of what they're working on. Um, an example of this could be in question form. In fact, a lot of these end up being in question form because they feel a lot more gentle to the client's system. So things like, how old were you when this happened? Or how tall were you when that happened? Right? So we're shifting their attention to focus on a piece of that experience that maybe um, will provide a different perspective, a different way of understanding that experience that will get them over the hurdle that they're currently stuck at. So interweaves don't necessarily have to come from a pre-organized list of interweaves. Um, they really can be uh, a way of we access our own systems and material and kind of check in and say, what does it feel like to me that this individual might be needing? What does it feel like is missing? And we can draw from our own experiences. We can draw from our own thoughts about it, our own feelings in that, mm -hmm. and put that into a creative uh, interweave for the client. So those organized lists can be helpful tools for teaching what interweaves are. They can be helpful in just a quick, easy access for our clients. But our greatest desire is really for each interweave to be kind of handcrafted for the client themselves. The more individualized it is for them and their experience, the more supportive and helpful it will be. We also want these interweaves to mimic their natural processing as much as possible. So even though we may be drawing from our own experiences or our own feelings and thoughts, we want to kind of put them in a form in which it mimics and matches the client's processing. Mm -hmm. So a good uh, kind of general guideline when you're imagining creating uh, interweaves on the fly with your clients um, is keep it short and sweet. <laughs> the shorter, the better, honestly. Uh, imagine, you know, how can I say this in the most um, quick way to activate what I want to activate in their system and then kind of send them on our way again. We also really encouraging uh, encourage asking it as a question. What that does is that allows the client system to sort of try it on for size without feeling pressure to accept it and agree with it. So the gentleness of asking in question form means that they can take it in, take what's useful and kind of let the rest go. So keep it short and sweet ask it as a question, and only go a little bit farther beyond where the client currently is and try to stay within their usual pattern of processing. One thing that can be really helpful is if you've done processing with a client before, take note of what helped them in the past. What interweaves were successful in the past? What interweaves were not successful at all? So you don't use those again. These are uh, some of the things that I actually take the time to make notes about this. I don't write down everything that happens in an EMDR session, but I do take note of interweaves that were particularly potent for them or ones that didn't work. So I remember that that's not a good fit for the client because we really want to try to match the interweaves to our client. And like Jen said, keep them as individualized and personal to them as possible. One of the things that we get a lot of questions about is dealing with dissociation in the midst of reprocessing. And we completely understand why we get this question because it's one of the things that number one, a lot of us were taught to be kind of terrified of <laughs> when we were initially trained in EMDR. The reason why there is a lot of discussion around not doing EMDR with people that are highly dissociative is because if there is a lot of dissociation present, it actually stalls out the reprocessing 
um, of the client's nervous system. And someone can get very easily stuck in that situation if we don't know how to help them navigate it. But the way that we're teaching you how to do EMDR from start to finish should really help mitigate a lot of that risk. Most of the major issues and challenges that people were facing is because they weren't titrating the whole process of EMDR for their clients in the way that we recommend. So things like going slow and doing a lot of extended resourcing if someone has a complex presentation, doing those practice low impact event targets at the very beginning is going to alert you to whether or not you need to be ready to manage association a lot or maybe just a little bit with your clients. And if you do need to manage it, there's a lot that we can do to really make EMDR successful for even very highly dissociative clients if we know how to work within their nervous system uh, where dissociation is present. Dissociation is common for clients when it comes time to reprocess trauma because dissociation is common during trauma. Dissociation is one of the uh, most likely strategies that a nervous system will go to in times of overwhelm. So it's important that we expect and anticipate that we're going to run into it when it's time to reprocess those traumas. If dissociation was used when the original event happened, and that was the strategy of the system at that time to survive, it's very likely that then as we go back and reaccess that trauma and the material that the nervous system will be inclined to utilize the same strategy yet again. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so common to see even the most mild forms of dissociation during processing. Mm -hmm. This really just emphasizes the importance of our role as a therapist to really be attuned to their system, not just the cognitive story that they're telling us when we ask the question, what do you get now? But really noticing their body and, and noticing their patterns of activation and that when they begin to, you see that activation kind of increase within the system and they exceed that window of tolerance is when the dissociation is going to happen. So we want to be tuned in enough to be able to prevent reaching that point of overactivation, overstimulation, or also at least tuned in enough that as mild dissociation comes in, things like staring off into space, yawning often, maybe feeling a little bit fuzzy not getting kind of a, a black image between sets, those types of clues are going to indicate to us that we've got to return back to a place of safety for our clients so that we don't further um, send them out of their window of tolerance and lead to maybe a, a greater uh, state of dissociation. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I find the most helpful in managing dissociation is to have honest conversations with our clients about dissociation. Um, of alerting them to the reality that this is a natural, normal, anticipated way that humans survive trauma. And so it's not some uh, dangerous or particularly abnormal experience to have. And so when it does start to come up, as we anticipate that it will in trauma reprocessing, they can alert us early in the stages of beginning to dissociate rather than waiting until it's kind of too far gone to do much about it. And if we can catch it early and bring safety and regulation to the system, oftentimes we can continue with reprocessing. We can help the system uh, come to a place of groundedness and safety and actually feel that I can access that traumatic material and not dissociate because I feel safe enough to actually feel what I wasn't safe enough to feel in the past. And that's actually part of what can be so healing about the AMDR experience when we know how to work within dissociation rather than being afraid of it. 
So if we're really considering dissociation as a strategy, the nervous system only employs strategy when it doesn't have enough safety. So if we see that strategy coming up, we want to prioritize um, increasing safety, reorienting um, their attention back to safety. Mm-hmm. And some ways that we can help in doing this and help to kind of regulate the system or prevent from going into that dissociation is through grounding techniques. Um, I have some mixed feelings about utilizing too many techniques in preventing dissociation because if the system is needing that strategy, we want to first honor the system's needs. So we want to see it as a a necessary strategy at that time and allow it to exist as much as necessary. Second, we move towards safety. And then if there's additional support that's needed, we bring in something like a grounding technique. This can be Um, giving them something to hold in their hands, to fidget with, uh, maybe a peppermint, anything that kind of helps them orient towards one foot in the past and one foot in the present. One thing about grounding techniques is it really can actually be a anchor in safety itself. So that type of grounding technique says there is a part of you that is here in the now and is safe here. We're revisiting the past, and that is where it feels unsafe. So for that person, as long as the present environment and the dynamics between you and them feel safe, grounding can actually be an anchor of safety and can really help the client from going into more dissociation. Mm -hmm. And if we navigate that successfully with a client, we can move through traumatic material relatively quickly in comparison to the feeling of dissociation happens and we have to ground and then we're done, right? We're able to kind of stay within and work within um, so that they can really start to resolve some of the root issues that created the need for dissociation in the first place. So while there used to be this idea that if somebody was highly dissociative, they weren't a good candidate for EMDR, if we know how to work within, they are a great candidate for EMDR. And we can uh, get a lot of work done as long as we know how to monitor their level of dissociation. We have shared language between us so that me and the client can talk about it and stay on the same page about what they're experiencing and then have ways of staying regulated together and safe together throughout that whole experience. So the introduction of ego state work into EMDR therapy can be very, very supportive for clients, really clients in general, but clients with a presentation of dissociation as well. So it can be really helpful to utilize ego state focused interweaves to help resolve those dissociative strategies. Ego state has tremendous value um, in a lot of different ways, but it can be specifically applied in that way of helping resolve the need for those dissociative strategies. Mm -hmm. So there is so much to be said about uh, working with dissociation throughout the EMDR process. And there's a ton to be said on using ego state work within EMDR. And so we cannot do an exhaustive job of that here, but we have lots of notice that episodes, um, episode 16 and episodes 42 through 49. Like I said, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, if you want a more in-depth discussion of how to work with dissociation and use ego state work within EMDR, because it really is important that we have tools to do that successfully. So now we're going to talk about closing 
closing your sessions, closure and reevaluation, but specifically looking at the differences in closing a complete session versus closing an incomplete session. So if you are into trauma processing and you're nearing the end of your session and you don't feel like your target has yet come to a full completion, remembering that that's a zero on the SUD scale, seven on the VOC scale, and a clear body scan, we, you know, there's a few things that we recommend to help bring our session to an end, even though the target is not yet completed. So standard EMDR says stay out of the processing as much as possible. One of the strategies that we use is that if the session is coming to a close, we start to increase the, the amount of interweaves, how much we are maybe being directive, guiding them a little bit, because we want to offer them a safe place to land at the end of the session rather than having such an abrupt ending. So um, in experience with this, I found myself like watching those last 15 minutes and be like, oh, maybe we're almost there just a little bit further. Let's try another set. But instead of pushing it to that point where you get to those last few minutes and you say, okay, let's put the rest in a container and leave, start to increase your amount of involvement in the processing. Kind of guide them and direct them into finding a safer place to land. An important thing to note though, is if we're doing this, we're not considering this a completed target. This is us interjecting in their processing, in their natural processing with inter interweaves to support them. But it means that when we come back to that next session to reevaluate, we are going to treat it as if it's an incompleted target mm -hmm. because it required so much of us to get there. We want it to be a part of their natural processing that gets them to that place. Now, if in the reevaluation phase, the next session, we check back in and it feels like all of that has really stuck and we go through and we check back in on the side voc and body scale or body scan, then we could consider it a complete target at that point. But as we're going through that and kind of guiding them, we're going to assume it's incomplete and that some of the pieces we've added in may be undone um, over time. And so we want to allow that natural processing to take place. So if we ended at a completed target, we can offer the client time to use their CompSafe place or any other resource that they want to that we've created with them. Um, it's also really helpful to just spend a few minutes connecting relationally. One of the most uh, helpful things to somebody to kind of reground and come back to the present moment is to be interacting in a safe relationship with another. So we can give our client a few minutes to just be with us in the room before they transition out into the rest of the world um, if they've been in trauma reprocessing. Uh, so making sure that we're leaving enough time to really offer a resource, but also just relationally connect. Sometimes that looks like just having a chat. <laughs> Sometimes it's really helpful to clients to talk about rescheduling, talk about something practical because it helps their system reorient uh, so they can go out into the rest of their day. If we end at a target that is not complete, we're going to use the client's container to contain any distressing material that they experience during the reprocessing. And then we're going to move into a calm, safe place or another resource that feels very stabilizing to them. Um, that really helps them leave in a regulated place. We're also going to remind them to continue to use both container and another resource in order to bring regulation in between. Because it is very common that if we didn't finish a target, if they're still walking out with some distress around that, they're going to keep processing that their system is still working on it. So we want to let them know that so they're not surprised if they feel a little bit extra sensitive or raw or distressed over the next few days until we get to see each other again. 
So one of the things that we like to remind people of is that we're going to review the three channels of processing to really make sure that we're getting the kind of um, completed targets that we're looking for. So we're looking for signs that these channels have been fully processed before considering the target complete. We don't want to leave any material behind if we can help it. So after we have wrapped up that session of reprocessing and we'll say the target is now incomplete, we come back into the reevaluation phase, always starting again with that point of connection. We want to anchor in safety, check in on how the week has been, what has come up from them, those general reevaluation questions. Even I often will ask them what's coming up for you right now in this room, just being back in here with me, knowing that we're going to continue in our work with the previous target. Through the collection of all of that information, we then make a decision of are we going to resume trauma processing of the previous target or are we going to shift in some way? If that target was not complete in the previous session, we may make the decision to come back into reprocessing that target and pick back up and resume that process. If we were to do that, we can access and reactivate that memory network as it's now stored through a few different ways. We can go back and um, ask them for what image is the most disturbing part now, Emphasizing that now piece, we're never going back to the original image because that will have changed over time. So what what piece is still remaining that we need to work on? Um, my preferred method is to just simply say, as you bring up that experience from last week, what comes up for you now? And whatever response that they give, I may move in to say, let's notice that. So it's a very gentle way into coming back into that trauma processing and just activates and accesses whatever is still remaining and doesn't take them back to any old material. Another option, if we determine that we had processed on the previous target and it wasn't complete, and maybe something new has come up between sessions, maybe a new life experience has happened or a new memory has emerged, we may make the decision to shift and to target something different. We may make the decision to move into reprocessing, or excuse me, resourcing, and to try to gather some new adaptive networks that are gonna be helpful for us to be able to work through that previous target. Um, there's many different things that we can do in that, but knowing part of the evaluation phase is kind of revisiting our case conceptualization and determining what is the next best step. We try to not get into a pattern of leaving targets un incompleted or unprocessed, uh, but there are those exceptions where we may at least put the target on hold, shift into something different, and at a later time come back to that target to complete its processing then. Mm -hmm. It's really pretty normal for clients to kind of get into a pattern of reprocess one week and then the next time we meet, they just want to talk and connect and be with us relationally. Week after week of uh, focused reprocessing can leave the client feeling kind of disconnected from us. Not always, but we want to be sensitive to those clients that actually just need to talk to us human to human. <laughs> and uh, we can talk with them about that explicitly to make sure that it's not um, resistance or fear in them of moving back into that target but if they just need time to relationally connect we want to give them that opportunity and so there's a natural ebb and flow that happens a lot of the time so we always want to be ready to adapt our treatment plan as more information is revealed 
And we've already mentioned that we really view history taking as an ongoing collaborative process. And as safety increases in the relationship with the client, more material is going to emerge. Also, as we reprocess, more material is going to emerge because naturally EMDR makes those associative connections and reveals what is behind a lot of the distress that our clients are presenting with. So one of the things that often gets revealed throughout that process is what we would call a feeder memory. A feeder memory is a stored experience in the client's nervous system that is holding some form of distress that's presenting um, that well that is meaning that the presenting target isn't clearing easily so basically it is a, a previous earlier memory that is blocking the full release of what we're trying to work on and in that case we're, we might have to shift gears and focus on that but that's one of those uh, memories that can emerge through reprocessing and saying hey we missed this in history taking which is okay but now we know what's actually behind this distress as we begin to identify those feeder memories or any experience that's kind of blocking the progress that we're trying to make, we may need to either contain the feeder memory and attempt to continue processing the target we started with, or we can contain the original target and shift over into processing the feeder memory. Um, that is really a collaborative decision and just kind of looking at where do we feel like we're going to be able to make progress in this. If we contain the feeder memory, one thing that we may have to be aware of is that we may not reach a fully cleared target with the original experience. It has previous events and life experiences that are contributing to its disturbance that until those are processed, we won't be able to fully clear the target that we started out with. So if we contain that feeder memory and stay focused on the original target, be, being able to reduce the disturbance enough um, and come to a more manageable place until that next session or whenever we feel ready to shift over into the feeder memory as being the focused target that we work on. So in that scenario where maybe we contain the original target and shift to a feeder memory, I caution everyone to not make this shift even like towards the end of a session, even midway into a session, because we can just start to open up and activate that memory network even more so without having the ability to really um, make any ground on that or process it much or offer a nice closure and containment at the end. So just staying aware of the time that you have with your client as you're trying to decide, do we make that shift or not? We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.